You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Let me invite you to uh, turn to Leviticus chapter 18. And for kindergartners and first graders, now's your time to, to go to Bible study. And so feel free to go with Mr. Tom standing right there, kindergartners and first graders. And for the rest of us, again, let me invite you to turn to Leviticus chapter 18. So this, if you're visiting here with us today, uh, we uh, are Redemption Church. We're glad you're here. And uh, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor. And so glad to have you this morning. And we've been working over the summer, chapter by chapter, through the book of Leviticus. And so we believe God's word is so profitable and encouraging. All of God's word is. We have a strong commitment to the authority and sufficiency of God's word. And again, as we've been going through Leviticus, we've been exploring this often neglected book of the Bible. But as we've done so, we've discovered so many wonderful things about God, about his love, his holiness, his grace and mercy. And we will continue to look to that as we look to Leviticus chapter 18. I've, I've joked in many ways this last week that Leviticus 18 deals or addresses just about every hot-button cultural issue in our country right now. And, and by God's grace, I'm going to attempt to proclaim this text faithfully in a way that will be profitable for the building up of his church. So let's read Leviticus 18. We'll pray and, of course, ask God for help and for understanding, and then we'll, we'll begin working through this text together. So Leviticus 18, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord, your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity, and you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister 
uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your, of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of uh, these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. Lord, as we deal in a, a lot of sensitive topics and areas of our lives and of our culture, issues that are so controversial this day and age, Father, we pray, Lord, that we would press into your word as your true and authoritative word, or that we would submit to its teaching, and Lord, that you would remind us of your standard of holiness. But Lord, as we Remember your holiness, Lord, we see how easily and how far we fall short of that standard. And so, Lord, we beg and plead for your grace and mercy and a reminder of the good news of Christ this morning from Leviticus 18. So, Father, we pray that you would work through your word as you promised that you would do. Lord, we ask that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, we live in a world that really is consumed with sex. Human sexuality not long ago was a bit of a taboo subject. You just didn't talk about it. And so conversations happening in our newspapers today would certainly make our grandparents and our great-grandparents blush just by talking about so many of these issues. And so in a lot of ways, discussing human sexuality is no longer laced with with shame or ignored, quite like it used to be. But our civilization and response has really just been kind of become consumed with the idea of sex. Indeed, sex is everywhere, from the scantily clad models hanging in the shopping mall on display to, to the pom-pom twirling cheerleaders on the sidelines of our football games, to the ripped ads, abs of our, our, our action stars, to the bedroom tips plastered on the covers of magazines in the grocery checkout aisle. I mean, it's everywhere. Every commercial, every song, every Instagram ad, every movie, all seems to be promoting a, a certain message of human happiness defined by sexuality. After all, as the saying goes, sex sells. 
So as we've discussed in Leviticus 15, if you were with us a few weeks ago and we looked at that particular chapter, we, we talked back then about this revolution, this moral revolution that has largely taken place within our lifetime. And this sexual revolution has uprooted the biblical sexual ethic that has undergirded, undergirded our understanding of marriage and family and children literally for millennia. And as this biblical worldview begins to continually and rather rapidly erode away, our society will become increasingly like the nations surrounding Israel, the nations that God is describing here in his law. Indeed, I think what we are witnessing today is nothing new, but rather something terribly old. We are seeing before our eyes the return of paganism. When the desires of the flesh is what ruled the day, and everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. So this, as Christians, as those who are trying to follow Jesus, who are committed to the authority of God's word, this is, this is hard. Because how do we as God's people, how do we pursue sexual holiness in an overly sexualized world? So Leviticus 18, in this passage, God has called Israel to live holy lives. Holy lives distinct from the sexual practices that were so common to the behaviors and, and the peoples of the surrounding nations. God is addressing specific relationships. He's forbidding certain behaviors for his people. And God is pretty clear, isn't he, that if, if his people were to engage in what he calls these abominable practices, the promised land would vomit them out just as God's getting ready to, to vomit out the Canaanites from the promised land. So here's, here's the sermon summary. It's really, really simple. It's easy to stay, but much harder to live. God calls his people to live distinct and holy lives in their sexuality. God calls his people to live distinct and holy lives in their sexuality. So as we work through Leviticus 18 this morning, I want to do it in four, four sections. I want to first look at the authority over sex. Then I want to look at the distortion from sex. Thirdly, I want to look at redemption from sex. And then fourthly, distinction in sex. So we'll get, get to each one of those. Let's look at the first one, the authority over sex. The authority over sex. The instructions given in Leviticus 18 are bookended by a call for Israel to be distinct, right? Verse, verse 1 through 5, this call to distinction Verse 24 through verse 30, God bookends it again with this call to be distinct. And you'll notice that there was a recurring refrain as we, revet, as we read Leviticus 18. What is it? Verse 2, verse 30, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. You see, as God is giving these commands to Israel, how they are to conduct themselves, he reminds them that, that he is the one who is the authority over their lives. It is the Lord who has the prerogative to establish what is the right conduct for his people. He determines what is right and what is wrong. And as we engage in this conversation about human sexuality today, this point really is foundational. Foundational. God determines what is normative and what is right and what is good. 
And this, this God-determined ethic the Bible clearly teaches, right, right here in Leviticus 18, that that God is the one who determines what is ethical, what is right, what is good. This is in contrast to two other theories adopted by so many in our culture today. Two theories that don't work. They're wrong, but two theories that nonetheless a lot of people have. Perhaps you have some of this mindset, or your friends have some of this mindset, or your family think this way. So, So what's one of those? Well, one of those theories today is that, well, you know, what, what's right and wrong is determined on the individual level. On the individual level. Each person, each individual, determines what is right and wrong for them. So the motto is, what's my life, my body, my choices, my rules? We've heard people talk this way. It's reflecting this sort of ethic or authority, isn't it? That it presumes that each person is their own authority who has the authority then to assemble their own ethical standard for their lives. This is how many people talk. I can do what I want to do. Don't tell me otherwise. And a lot of people talk this way, but when you begin to really investigate their lives, they certainly don't live that way, do they? For example, even by today's standards, most individuals in our society would recoil at the thought of child molestation or sexual trafficking. Even even there's enough common grace in our society where most people realize those are detestable things. But if you push the logic of this individualized sexual ethic, if the authority of the ethics then really uh, resides in the individual, then then on what grounds do we condemn these behaviors as wrong? If the autonomous behavior is an individual, if if I get determined what's right and what's wrong, then what right do we have to tell somebody else that what they're doing is wrong, is sinful? is detestable. You see, a moral line has to be drawn somewhere. We all live that way. And so it's inconsistent then to say, well, then I'm the one that determines what that line is. No, if if moral authority is drawn on the individual level, then ethics falls apart and society cannot sustain it. We don't live that way. So to say that I determine what is right and wrong is just inconsistent and just doesn't work. So since some who adopt this idea of moral authority on the individual level, since it kind of leads to moral anarchy in society, some have tried to put ethical authority into the hands of society itself. That society is what determines what is ethical, what is right and wrong, and then society codifies ethics into law. But, But ethics based on the tyranny of the majority creates its own sets of problems, doesn't it? If society is the authority... That's confusing because society seems to be constantly changing its mind, doesn't it? And sometimes, as we've seen throughout history, the majority gets it very wrong, don't they? For example, was it moral for the first Americans to enslave people based on race? Well, if you believe ethics are determined by society and by a societal consensus, then you would be hard-pressed to say it was morally wrong for, for those people to hold slaves, After all, it was legal to do so. But friends, as we have learned, something can be legal and be morally reprehensible. Though laws ought to reflect true morality, laws do not determine morality. Plus, 
If society determined what was moral anyway, they, it's constantly changing. It's always in flux. So there's no moral abs- absolutes. It's, it's changing with each generation. What's right one day becomes wrong the next. And what's wrong one day becomes right the next. And so if morality is determined by society, it's like trying to take aim at a target in the midst of a tempest. The winds of cultural change spin too fast for anyone to live a moral life in a society with amorphous and shifting standards. So without turning this into a full-blown ethics class, (laughs) Leviticus 18 tells us what we as God's people, we have to know, right? This is where we start. God is the authority. It's not you. It's not society. It's not our governments. God is the authority. He determines what is right and wrong. He determines what is good and what is sinful. And so God is our creator. And because he is our creator, he speaks his authoritative word over our lives. He is the source of all that is true, all that is righteous, all that is good. And as God, he determines the ethics of our bodies. And he instructs us with his divine authority. He is not silent on these matters. And as God, he determines that his word will be that authority. You see, God's word is not a suggestion, nor does God's word change over time. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as God speaks to Israel here in Leviticus 18, he's he's reminding them that he is the Lord who commands them with divine authority, even over the conduct of their bodies. And this is exactly what the New Testament says too, is right? It's not just in Leviticus 18. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You see, when it comes to our sexual conduct, as, as those who have submitted to God, who have received the grace of salvation, we then submit willingly to God's authoritative and righteous standard, to his good word recorded in Leviticus 18. Now, at this point, you might be having an objection. So, you know, if you've been following along with us through this series in Leviticus, we've seen time and time again that that Christ fulfills much of the laws that we've talked about. All these sacrificial laws, all the, the tabernacle system, we, we're constantly making the connection that, that Christ has come and he's fulfilled those laws. So you might be asking then, why not Leviticus 18? Why doesn't Christ fulfill that one? Why do we still uphold the moral law here in Leviticus 18? But why then do we stop doing the sacrificial laws from earlier in the book? Are we Christians simply being arbitrary? cherry-picking here in our interpretation and our handling of God's word? Well, the answer is no, we're not. And it's on the following grounds why we continue to hold to the moral standard here in Leviticus 18. Two, Two big reasons. First, the ethical laws concerning sexuality here are grounded in created order. The creation order that God has made, this is what these laws are based in. These are not just guidelines for the theocracy of Israel here, such as the the weaving of two different materials into the same garment that we'll read about next week in Leviticus 19. It's not this type of law. No, these laws are grounded 
in the good created order of marriage established in Genesis chapter 2. This is God's design. And this is God's design for human sexuality to be within the covenant of marriage. This is the only proper relationship for sexual expression and activity. So God's design for sexuality then is pre-fall. It's pre-Israel, pre-covenant at Sinai, right? This is God's normative pattern that he established for his human creatures before sin ever entered into the world. And so because creation is the grounds for what's being taught here in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18 isn't anything new, nor is it anything God is adding to his prior instructions for his people. No, these ethical instructions here in Leviticus 18 are simply elaborating upon God's created order, particularly addressing deviations from his created design for human sexuality. And so God's standard back in creation does not change between covenants, whether old or new. It doesn't change between the centuries. It doesn't change in in the 21st century. No, God's standard for human sexuality has been normative since the beginning of the creation of the world. So that's one reason why we hold Leviticus 18 to, to still exhibit a consistent ethic for God's people even today. But there's a second reason is that the ethical instructions in Leviticus 18 are explicitly affirmed in the New Testament. This helps us understand why Leviticus 18 doesn't just get cast away with in the name of being fulfilled. No, no, the New Testament is quite clear that these, this ethical standard that Leviticus 18 describes here is also affirmed in the New Covenant. So for the sacrificial laws, for the tabernacle itself, for the priesthood, the New Testament is explicit and saying that these have all been fulfilled, that these components of the law, they find their fulfillment in Christ, so therefore we no longer practice them in the new covenant age. Indeed, that's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. Go read it sometime. You'll see the beautiful connections as we have already in this book. However, some of the law is reaffirmed in the New Testament, and sometimes the law in the Old Testament is actually intensified in the New Testament particularly when it comes to the moral aspects of the law, such is the case here in Leviticus 18. So the abominable sexual practices listed here are also condemned in the Gospels and the Epistles, including the practice of homosexuality, which is of such conversation today. But even if, right, even if you rip Leviticus 18 out of your Bible, we ripped it away, it's not in God's word anymore, and of course you can't do that, but let's say you did, there are still mounds of other passages addressing what is right and ethical sexual behavior for God's people. God's word speaks in unity, and it does not contradict itself across covenants. So go to Romans 1. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5-7, through 7, right? All of them affirm the permanence of God's ethical standard for human sexuality. Leviticus 18 is not an anomaly. But you might have another objection. Okay, well, what about Jesus? All right, what about Jesus? We talked about Paul. We talked about the New Testament epistles. We've talked about the law, but, but what about Jesus? And some will bring up that, that, that rebuttal, right? That, that Jesus never said anything about human sexuality, which, of course, is a lie, but, but he never said anything, perhaps, about the moral standard of homosexuality. Well, this is just a false premise that we have to 
identify right out the gate, you can't separate Jesus's words from the rest of the Bible. It's all God's word. We don't get to pick Jesus's words as more authoritative than the rest of the Bible. That's why red letter Bibles are a bad idea because it begins to elevate Jesus's words above the rest of the Bible. And you just can't do that. All of it is God's word. All of it is Jesus's words. All of it is authoritative equally. But let's say we assume that premise, right? Let's say, let's take that false premise. What does Jesus actually say about this matter? Jesus does speak about these issues. He doesn't hesitate it, including the morality of homosexuality, which might actually surprise you. You see, Jesus was a Torah-believing rabbi. He believed in the law. He believed in Leviticus. He believed that not one jot or tittle will pass away from Leviticus, from the law, from Leviticus 18. Jesus affirmed the authority and the permanence of God's word here. And also, in Jesus' answering a question about divorce in Matthew 19, Jesus affirmed God's created design in Genesis as normative for society. He claims that the biblical definition of marriage, when he responds in this way, this is what he says, this is Matthew 19, verse 4 through 5. Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? What is Jesus doing? He's quoting Genesis 2 and saying, this is God's design. This is what he intended. This is the normative ethical pattern. So Jesus explicitly, explicitly affirmed in the New Testament, God's design for marriage as between one man and one woman for one lifetime as the only appropriate expression for sexual union. And Jesus not only confirmed what God's word says in Leviticus 18, I would suggest that Jesus also intensified what is said in Leviticus 18. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says that not only is sexual sin an issue, not only is sexual sin not just about engaging and forbidding behaviors and relationships, but Jesus would say if anyone looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus' sexual ethic is more intense even here than Leviticus 18. It goes beyond the external. It goes beyond the behaviors. And Jesus puts the, the zoom in, the crop on the heart, and says, this is where God's standard begins, in your heart and in mine. So if anyone who would argue, and there are many that are trying to do this, many have tried, anyone who would argue that Jesus does not reject homosexuality or the sexual revolution, they just... They just simply haven't read Jesus. They haven't read the New Testament. They haven't read the words carefully enough. And if you have to do hermeneutical gymnastics to even try to twist Jesus' words into affirming what we're witnessing today. So any Christian, and there are some, trying to embrace this new ethic of the sexual revolution has to either say the Bible has errors or Jesus was wrong. That's what you have to say. Either we accept Jesus and his inspired word as the authority, as true, as right, as good, or we tell Jesus you are wrong and your word is harmful. You see, there's, there's no middle ground here on these matters. Either God is the authority or he's not. 
And God is the authority over sex. He tells us repeatedly in Leviticus 18, I am the Lord. And so the question is, will we submit to God's word or will we rebel against it? And that leads secondly to the distortion of sex, to the abominable customs that Leviticus 18 describes. So Leviticus 18 describes several forbidden practices for God's people. Practices that the text connects to what Egypt was doing. Remember, they're coming out of Egypt. So so God says, this is what you saw was happening in Egypt, but this is also what you're going to see happening in Canaan when you get there, the the, the promised land. These are what these two nations are doing. These These are normative for them, but they aren't normative for you. And so God gives these ethical laws to prepare his people for life in the promised land. And these sinful abominations described are are why the Lord will vomit out the Canaanites out of the land. Israel's conquest of the land is the sword of God's judgments on this pagan nation for their wicked and abominable behavior. So let's let's look specifically at those behaviors that are condemned. Let's, Let's look first at verse 6 through 18. And here in this section of verses, we see the sin of incest, the sin of incest. The phrase, uncover the nakedness, which recurs repeatedly through these verses, was a euphemism for sexual activity, similarly to how we kind of use the phrase sleeping together. So for Israel, incest included any familial relationship, any familial relationship. It went beyond merely a blood or a genetic connection. So the grounds for for incest here is really tied to the one flesh union of marriage that that God described back in Genesis. For example, look at at verse 8 of the text just to be able to see the logic of what's happening here. So in verse 8, God says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So, So a sexual relationship then with your stepmother is forbidden. Why? Not because you're blood related, but because she has had a one flesh union with your biological father. So the logic goes, uncovering the nakedness of your stepmother is as if you were uncovering the nakedness of your father because the two of them shared a one flesh union. So for Israel, incest was more than just a biological link, but involved anybody in close proximity relationally to your family. So during ancient times, you have to remember, family life was a little bit different. Families lived very close together very close together in close proximity, and families were quite large. Many clans all hung out in the same neighborhood. Your neighborhood, in a lot of ways, was your family. And many clans, family clans, wanted to consolidate wealth and power in the family through incestuous marriage. It kept all the possessions in the family. They have to share it with another clan, with another family. So in addition, these close quarters of Everybody you know kind of being in your family in close proximity to you, living in very close quarters, the the sin of incest was tempting to many. But God is clear, as he tells Israel, incest is sin, and any family member who engages in sexual activity with another will be judged before God for that sin. And in our broken and fallen world, sexual abuse in the family is a horrific horrific problem. You read the statistics and it'll make you weep. One in five girls and one in 12 boys 
will be sexually abused by their 18th birthday. 95% of sexually abused children will be abused by someone they know and trust. Half of those molested as children under the age of six are molested by family members. 23% of those abusing teenage children are family members. I mean, those statistics are horrifying, horrifying. If you've been a victim of sexual abuse, I want you to know that you have been sinned against. Where our culture might be ambiguous on that matter, God's word is not. You have been sinned against. And God will hold account your abuser. Though I can't imagine the the pain and hardship that you have experienced, that you are experiencing, I do know that Jesus is ready to minister to you, to balm your wounds with his grace. And as a church, we are prepared and ready to to minister to you, to, to pray for you, to listen to you, to weep with you as we pursue Christ together as God's people. And if you are currently a victim of sexual abuse, please talk to someone today. Come find me, find another member of this church, talk to us today so we can get you out of the situation in which you're in and we can work with the appropriate governing authorities to deal with this criminal matter. Know that you are loved. Know that we stand ready to serve and love you in any way that we can as God's people. So in in addition to incest, Leviticus 19 makes it clear that lying with a woman in her menstrual uncleanness was also to be forbidden for God's people. And so we saw back in Leviticus 15 that that having ritual uncleanness in this way would, would, of course, make you unclean and unfit to come into the tabernacle. Verse 20, if you look at the text there, forbids a sexual relationship with anyone's wife, which is adultery, one of the Ten Commandments. So this also includes, of course, any unmarried female having sexual relationship out of wedlock is, is sin. Verse 21 condemns the practice of child sacrifice, which again was a regular occurrence for Canaanite pagan worship as they sacrifice their children to the false god Molech. And here we're beginning to see, aren't we? How, you know, why the Lord is bringing judgment on the Canaanites. They were a wicked people. They were doing perverse and evil things. You know, a lot of people read Joshua and they have a hard time understanding why God would command his people to to kill off a whole nation. But I heard one pastor put it and I agree with him. He said, I don't struggle with the conquest of the Canaanites, but I would struggle with a God who would not bring judgment and justice upon such a wicked nation. So if the blood of the Canaanite children cried out for justice, the blood of American children cries out all the more just by the sheer number slaughtered at Molech's altar. Any nation who fails to protect the lives of children, including the unborn, will face the wrath and judgment of God. For God's people, we must be those who protect the lives of children, and we must never give children as a sacrifice to the god Molech that's currently out there masquerading under the guise of, of choice 
and convenience. Verse 22, forbids homosexuality and calls it an abomination. So the acceptance and celebration of homosexuality has brought the, the greatest and most enormous moral change of our time. God's sexual ethic, though, does not change. And homosexuality, the Bible affirms, is a distortion, an inversion of God's created design. Homosexuality is no worse than other sexual sins. And of course, we want to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all sinners, homosexual and heterosexual life alike, but we can't hesitate. We can't buckle. We can't hesitate to call sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And those who don't affirm homosexuality today will be called bigoted or hateful. And as Christians who are committed to God's word, we will hear those false charges and more. But may we as God's people show love to all people. And may we not hesitate, though, to call sin what the Bible calls sin. So the church on this particular topic has has really struggled to speak faithfully on the matter of homosexuality. And part of that's just because of how fast these issues have come up. We've been caught flat-footed in how to speak with them. And so perhaps at first, the church spoke harshly on these matters with a lot of hate and condescension and self-righteousness associated with our words. But as I'm watching (laughs) the culture ever change and the church respond to it, now it seems, though, we're, we're actually struggling with the opposite problem. Now it seems that many Christians want to speak about grace and love to their LGBT neighbors and community, which is wonderful and good. But in that process, I think many are beginning to slip away from boldness and calling sin, sin. And so we have to speak in love. We also have to speak in truth. And ambiguity is just as harmful as harsh words of judgment. We have to be clear and loving and gracious and bold. And so may God give us grace and wisdom in how to minister and love our neighbors faithfully during this time. Verse 23 of the text forbids bestiality. So human sexuality is to be confined within humanity, within the context of marriage. And bestiality was a pagan practice that Israel was to banish. It happened in Canaan. And though bestiality is still largely taboo, uh, it wouldn't be surprising to me as society continues to reject the biblical sexual ethic for bestiality to one day become mainstream yet again. And as human sexuality is unrestrained from biblical norms, we will and we have seen further perversions of God's standard, particularly as technology advances. You see, the, the porn industry is already gearing up for monetizing new technologies of virtual and augmented reality. The first brothel staffed entirely by robots was set to open in Houston, Texas last year. And may God help us and give us wisdom and how to speak prophetically in a sexual age, increasingly distorting God's good design for sexuality and human flourishing. And may God provide common grace upon our land, upon this world to restrain the perversions, both now, here, and on the horizon. And so as we've looked at these abominations, let's now thirdly turn to redemption from sex. 
keep my statutes and rules. So God gave Israel his law concerning sexual behavior. But if you read the Old Testament, you'll find out that Israel increasingly perverted and disobeyed God's law. They were to be distinct, but time and time again, they fell into the same patterns of these pagan nations. And though God makes his holy standard clear, Israel would transgress that standard. Even King David would break Leviticus 18 as he took his neighbor's wife. God is clear in verse 26 of this text. Look at it carefully. But you, Israel, you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations. And as we read the Old Testament, we find that Israel failed. Israel engaged in these abominations time and again. And so this gets a little bit into the purpose of why God gives his law, why we need Leviticus 18. Because the law reveals God's righteous standard. The law is a mirror in which we see our sin, we see our failure, we see our brokenness. You see, the law does not create sin in us. The law merely exposes sin in us, that we do not meet God's righteous standard. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 when he says, What shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And then Paul continues in that same chapter, and he says, the very commandment that promised life proved to me, proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So, so God's law is a gracious gift. Leviticus 18 is a gracious gift from God that reveals and exposes our sin, that convicts us, and that helps us see our need for grace. Like Israel, we too have failed to uphold God's law, his righteous standard. Who who can read Leviticus 18 and not find fault in their own thoughts and their own actions? Leviticus 18 not only exposes what's wrong with this world, but it exposes what's wrong in your heart, in my heart. We are sinners who have transgressed God's good law, and we are deserving of God's death and judgment, just like the Canaanites were. We're in their company. We're among that number, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the scriptures say. So passages like Leviticus 18 should not cause any one of us here this morning to puff up in pride or self-righteousness. All of us have sinned and succumbed to sexual temptation, if not bodily, then certainly in our hearts. The sins listed here in Leviticus 18 are painful to remember. Sins of adultery, of abuse, of abortion, of homosexuality, of pornography. You see, as the law exposes your sin this morning, do not wallow in guilt or sit silently in shame. But go to the Lord. Go to Christ who loves you and who stands ready to redeem you. See, the law reveals that you cannot do it. You see, you and I, we can't be good enough. We can't be righteous enough. But the law does point towards the one who is good enough, who is blamelessly righteous, and to the Messiah, 
the Son of God, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who lived righteously, who lived in full obedience to the law, who never acted or even thought sinful thoughts. Jesus obeyed the letter of the law written in Leviticus 18, but he also obeys its spirits, never lusting after another man or woman. You see, as the one obedient son, Jesus has earned his standing before God. He is righteous. He is holy. He is blameless. And by grace, God has provided you his son as an atoning sacrifice for your sin so that you could be redeemed, so that you can be cleansed, so that you might know the love of God. Though you deserve death, God has given you life. Though you deserve wrath, God has given you grace. And though you deserve to be cut off from the people and vomited into hell, God in Christ redeems you and brings you near. We who are unrighteous can be made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know your specific sins this morning. Your sin may be great. Maybe you are enslaved in the lust of your flesh, addicted to pornography. Perhaps you've committed adultery in the past or even now presently taking another person's spouse in a romantic or sexual relationship. Maybe you are engaged in a sexual relationship now through flirting, through sexting, through the physical act of the sexual relationship, engaging that in someone with someone who's not your spouse. Perhaps you are involved in a same-sex relationship and you struggle with same-sex attraction and temptation. Maybe you've had an abortion and you've sinned against your child and your God. If that's you, I want you to listen very carefully to God's word today. Yes, you have sinned, but God loves you and he is ready to give you grace and forgiveness this morning. You do not have to sit in silent shame. Confess your sins to God. Repent of those sins turning away from them, from those many wicked deeds, and fling yourself as a poor and needy sinner onto the feet of Jesus Christ. Run to him in faith and then be forgiven and walk in the newness of life that Jesus offers. And then in the power of God's grace and the power of God's spirit, go and sin no more. Be forgiven. You see, there's no sexual sin so egregious, so horrific, so abominable that Jesus cannot save you from. He can do it. Come to Jesus today. Find me after the service. Talk to another person, another member of this body. We'd love to share with you the good news of Christ, to listen to you, to share in your burdens, and to lead you through repentance and trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. And praise be to God this morning that Jesus redeems us out of sexual sin. That leads fourthly, distinction in sex. Distinction in sex. Do not do as they do. You see, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus makes us clean. He makes us righteous. He gives us his righteousness. And as we become God's children then, we are citizens of his kingdom. 
And that as those who have been redeemed by Christ, we are called to live distinctly in the world. That was his desire for Israel. That God had brought them out of Egypt. He made Israel his people for his glory. And as God is preparing them for the promised land, God gave them his holy and righteous expectations for their lives. And if they failed, they were to be vomited out of the land, just like the Canaanites were. And that's exactly what happened when you read about the Babylonian exile. But in this new covenant age, God also causes people, you and I, the church, to be holy. The difference is this time, we possess the indwelling spirit of God. God's grace has transformed our hearts. And we now have the spirit who has set us free from sin and who will guide us into all truth. Church, as those who have received the free grace of God, let us heed the warnings of the scriptures that those who practice the behaviors in Leviticus 18 will not inherit the kingdom of God. We have been rescued to worship the Lord, to live holy lives in Christ Jesus for his glory. So in terms of our sexuality as Christians, we must be distinct from the world, not just in what we believe, but how we live our lives. First, we have to be prepared to face the condemnation and mockery of this world as we refuse to embrace this new sexual ethic. It has come, it will continue to come. Increasingly, as faithful, Bible-believing followers in Jesus, we will feel like aliens and foreigners in our land. And that's exactly what the Bible said would happen. We shouldn't be surprised. But yet we cannot celebrate what God has condemned. We have to hold the truth, even as we extend grace and mercy to all people. We have to be distinct in what we believe. That's the first thing. We have to also, secondly, be distinct in how we live how we lived. May we not be found as hypocrites who reject the world's sexual ethic in public only to embrace it in secret. Sexual sin is a plight to the church today. Pornography is just as big of a problem inside the church as it is outside of it. Professed Christian couples who engage in sexual activity before marriage and who frequently live together before marriage is a problem in the church, not just outside of it. Adultery and divorce are repeated patterns that defile Christ's church. Church, may we be holy and distinct from the world. You see, our hypocrisy tarnishes the reputation of Christ and erects barriers to the lost and watching world. You see, when a holy church proclaims the gospel, the world will listen in. Their ears will pick up. But when a hypocritical church proclaims that same gospel, the world will ignore us and disregard us. You see, the church's holiness is vital for our gospel witness. So church, we must put to death our sin. Holiness is not optional for a Christian. Yes, there is grace. Praise the Lord for that. Time and time again, not only before faith, but after faith, and we need it. But may we not cheapen and abuse God's grace by being passive or permissive to our sin. As the Puritan John Owen said, let not man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lust. What does that mean? In other words, don't just say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm pursuing holiness, if you refuse to deal with the problem of your sexual lust and station. 
As Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. May we not coddle our sin, but with the Spirit's power, put to death the deeds of the flesh. May we help each other in this. Lord knows we need the Lord's help, and we need the help of his body to put to death sin in our lives as his blood, the blood of Christ, is the sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. And so by the grace of God, may we live unto God. And as we live unto God, may our lust lie dead at our feet, stayed and slayed by the power of Jesus Christ. So God's word pierces us this morning from Leviticus 18. It does me, I'm sure it does many of you. And in these confusing times, may we resolve to accept God's word as the authority over our lives. Yes, God does set the standard, the ethical standards for human sexuality. sexuality. But God redeems sinners in Christ. He sanctifies us as those who have been redeemed to live holy and distinct lives in Christ Jesus. Friends, God's law here in Leviticus 18, it is not harmful. Instead, God's law intends to protect us, to protect you from the harm and hollowness of sexual sin. Sexual sin is like a siren song, a temptation from lesser lovers to entice you only to destroy you. So do not be wooed by a world whose only intention is to use you and abuse you. You will not find the fulfillment you desire by seeking it through the indulgence of your sexual desire. You're not going to find it there. Instead, seek a greater joy. Seek a permanent pleasure. Do not be enticed with the one night stand of lesser lovers when God has extended to you his covenantal love as your husband. And through Christ, you have been united to God by faith in Jesus Christ. You've been bound by the spirit to experience the exquisite joys and pleasures and delights that are to be found in divine love. So church, come, come beloved and be ravished by your king. Let's pray together. Father, as we reflect on this text, Lord, we see our sin. And Lord, we fling ourselves upon Christ now. Lord, may you save us. May you minister to us. May you sanctify us. Father, I pray for those currently in a pattern of sexual sin. Lord, if they don't know Christ, Father, I pray that you would help them to see the errors of their ways. And Lord, that they would turn from their sin and cling in faith to Jesus Christ and so be saved. Father, I pray for those of us who are in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be holy and distinct, that we would not cheapen and abuse your grace, but Lord, that we might be found faithful citizens of your kingdom. Lord, where there is sexual sin in our lives as your people, may we repent of it. May we not coddle it, but Lord, may we by the power of your spirit put it to death. But Father, above all else, as we read your word, as we hear its truths this morning, we Confess that we need Jesus. We need his mercy. We need his grace. We need his forgiveness. And Lord, upon him, we rely now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.